This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High-acuity patients require time-sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents, allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Hello and welcome to Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Darren Highland, MD, MSc, FRCPC, on the article, Incidents, Risk Factors, and the Clinical Consequence of Enteral Feeding Tolerance in the Mechanically Ventilated Critically Ill, an analysis of a multi-center, multi-year database. This article is published in Critical Care Medicine, and to access the full article, please visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Highland is Director of the Clinical Evaluation Research Unit at Kingston General Hospital and Professor in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Queen's University School of Medicine in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Highland. Let's get logistics out of the way. Do you have any disclosures to report for us? Thanks, Ludwig, for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Yes, I do have a disclosure. I was uh, working as a consultant for Takeda Pharmaceuticals when we uh, conducted uh, the, the analysis of this data set, helping them uh, design a protocol to study a novel motility agent in critically ill patients with enteral feeding intolerance. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, let's get started. So I was hoping to be able to do a podcast about enteral nutrition because it's so important in really good bread and butter critical care. So this is so great. Thank you for being here again. Maybe I could get you to start this podcast by outlining for us what this study was about, your design, and um, the, the findings that you found particularly interesting in your personal conclusions about what you were looking for. Great. Well, thanks. Sure. Happy to do that. I've been an advocate for optimal nutrition practices in ICU for a couple of decades now. And for a couple of decades, we've been auditing uh, nutrition practices in ICUs around the world. And over the years, we've amassed a very large database of thousands of ICU patients where we track you know, who they are, so descriptions of these patients, what nutrition practices they get, and what outcomes they have. And so that data set afforded us an opportunity to say, well, hmm, who's, who's developing enteral feed intolerance? Can we identify characteristics at either the site or patient level that helps us identify those patients? And might those patients be different than patients who don't develop enteral feeding tolerance? And by difference, we thought, well, let's look at the nutritional and the clinical outcomes that of people with, you know, or without enteral feeding intolerance. And can we identify, you know, risk factors for the development of enteral feeding intolerance so that it gives us insights into how we might manage these patients differently. So like I said, we had a very large database. We were able to analyze it and describe 
an incidence around, you know, one in four patients will develop enteral feeding intolerance. Um, it occurs usually early in the course of critical illness, uh, let's say day four, day five, and then after that, it tapers off. Maybe, unfortunately, we weren't really able to hone down on specific patient characteristics that help us develop a really accurate profile of who's going to develop it and who's not. I can make some general comments that sicker patients are more likely to develop enteral feeding intolerance as, as judged by their Apache scores, for example, or patients who come from case mix groups like sepsis or burns, those are more likely to develop enteral feeding intolerance. As you can imagine, patients with GI problems that led to their ICU admission also develop enteral feeding intolerance. So that's kind of the best we came up with, with identifying the cohort that are more likely to develop enteral feeding intolerance. What we feel is that... Darren, before you continue, maybe I could just ask you a couple more questions about the sure. patient population. Um, so first question is, how did you arrive at this registry? Uh, which ICUs were these? And then related to that is, what is the composition of the patients? Are they medical patients, surgical, uh, a mixture of both? You talked about burns. So did they also include burn units, demographics? So, 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 so some more details there. Yeah. So really, because we've been working in many ICUs from around the world, 785 ICUs from around the world were involved. It represents a very heterogeneous group of ICUs and a very heterogeneous group of ICU patients. We have burn units. We have burn patients. We have cardiovascular surgery patients. We have cardiovascular units. Um, we have medical, we have surgical, we have neurological. So, I mean, you name it, it's in there. There's over 15,000, you know, patient data points. And that's one of the strengths of this analysis is it's such, such a large data set from such a diverse and dispersed group of ICUs around the world. Yeah, that's great. Just describing that what we found that we think was clinically important was if you develop enteral feeding intolerance as judged by a high gastric residual volume and or other signs and symptoms of, of GI distress, you know, uh, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, abdominal distension, then you're more likely to get less nutrition and you're more likely to die and you're more likely to have worse outcomes as judged by length of stay or time to discharge alive. So this is a clinically important entity and raises the question of, ooh, you know, should we or should we make better efforts to identify those patients who are going to develop it so we can prevent it? Or once manifested, should we, you know, what are our treatment strategies so that we can try and intervene to improve the outcomes of this high-risk patient population? Right. Yes. I think this was very interesting to me in that now we can have some numbers that we can talk about. For example, your study tells us that Patients with enteral feed intolerance receive about 10% less nutrition than those who are tolerating the entire time. And I'm going to assume that that's a, that that's a lot of protein and calories that are, you know, not, not being met really. And you also find that they have increased length of stay and increased mortality, decreased ventilator-free days. Though Those are all uh, clinical outcomes that I think all of us are very much interested in as critical care personnel, right? Yeah. No, I, I think for sure, you know, the odds of dying are 1.5 times greater if you developed enteral feeding intolerance, you know, than those that don't. 
whether a 10% change in nutrition intake or a decrease in nutrition intake is clinically important, I think really depends on the nutritional risk of the patient. And I think it's at this point, it, it might be fair to say that, you know, not all ICU patients are the same. Not all ICU patients are going to benefit from optimal nutrition. There's some patients that, you know, if they get 10% less, so what, who cares? But if you've got a high nutritionally risked patient group that is experiencing persistent enteral feeding intolerance, they are going to do very poorly. And we want to, first of all, try and define that group, monitor them for the development of enteral feeding tolerance, ideally develop strategies to prevent that from occurring in this high-risk group. And then again, like I said a minute ago, if it does occur, then we're on top of it and we're managing it. Yeah, I'd like to discuss all of those things that you just mentioned uh, later on this podcast. I wanted to ask you one question about what you just said, that you know, we're not sure exactly what the significance is that patients with interruption in the enteral feeding get 10% less enteral nutrition. And this made me think about something. There might be a difference between getting less enteral nutrition versus a actual mismatch in their calorie and amino acid need, for example. And I was wondering if your group had an opportunity to, to analyze that. What do you mean by mismatch? I guess what I'm saying is, so... One of the things that you just mentioned is that uh, in this paper is that enteral feed intolerance patients received about 10% less enteral nutrition intake. So they, they, they had the enteral nutrition interrupted. So I was thinking, well, that could just be a marker that they're not doing as well clinically, like overall. And, and for sure, they're getting less enteral nutrition. Is that the reason for their poor outcome? Um, how about more detail in, in, in terms of that? Do patients who have poor outcomes actually, for example, have a calorie deficit or a protein, a negative protein balance, for example? I was wondering if you, um, your group analyzed that. Now I understand your question. And no, we didn't analyze that in the context of this date, of, of this report. We have analyzed that in the context of the data set and published other papers showing that patients who have low calorie or low protein intake have worse clinical outcomes. And in fact, we've, we've actually shown that it's probably the protein deficit that's more important than the caloric deficit. These are observational analyses. And so people might say, well, maybe it's just that sicker patients you know, don't tolerate nutrition and they have a worse outcome. And there's no causal inference to be made there. Uh, and that's a fair, fair, fair judgment. Of course, we try and control for all sorts of confounding variables in making these assertions that patients who don't tolerate nutrition have worse outcomes. But the randomized trials would be the sort of the better standard to look at. You know, what is the impact of more nutrition or less nutrition in the control group on, on clinical outcomes? And to be frank, we have a hard time demonstrating the value of 10% or more added calories and even added protein to ICU patients. And the problem there is it comes back to this nutritional risk conversation I alluded to that, you know, if you take heterogeneous ICU patients and you randomize them to a high amount or a low amount of nutrition, hard to, hard to see a difference. But that's because not all ICU patients are the same. And we need to, you know, randomize nutritionally high risk patients. And we have done that. And we've shown that these high risk patients, in fact, 
do benefit from having optimized nutrition. So not all patients will will be bothered by missing 10%. That's one of my key points. Mm, got it. Well, you had mentioned to me that one thing that you like to remind people is that not all enteral feeding intolerance is the same. Yeah. And I wanted to get you to elaborate on that thought and to, to make sure that we all left this podcast having learned that. Yeah, I, great. Grateful for the opportunity to, to talk about that. And I'm sure every clinician you know, listening to this podcast can recall an incident at the bedside where a nurse reported to him or her, oh, this patient has a gastric residual volume of 350 cc's. What should I do? And, and you scratch your head and you wonder if that's a clinically important event. And, you know, many times those um, high residual volumes occur in the context of a, of a stable patient or someone who, you know, doesn't look that sick, who doesn't look inflamed or with abdominal distension. And so you, you, you wonder, and many times you come back four, six, 12 hours later and you do another measurement and it's gone. And, and so there, there probably is, you know, a phenomena of not that important high gastric residual volume. And yet what we describe in our paper is if you look for people who have either persistent, meaning it, it spreads over more than one day or relapsing, meaning it occurred this day, maybe it was gone the next day, but it came back later. Those persistent or relapsing or recurrent enteral feeding intolerance patients do way worse than someone who has a one-off. Now, of course, how would you, how would you know that if you weren't doing you know, regular scheduled uh, evaluations of, their entro- uh, of gastric residual volumes to diagnose enteral feeding intolerance? And so we advocate for that. We advocate that you know, in patients, you're monitoring their gastric residual volumes, their enteral feeding intolerance. And with someone that has a one-off and they look well otherwise, I wouldn't worry about it. But in people who have persistent high gastric residual volumes and in those people who are nutritionally high risk, that's where it's a perfect storm. And if these people aren't attended to properly, they can suffer bad outcomes that possibly could be have been improved by therapeutic maneuvers. Do you have any thoughts about the mechanism behind enteral feeding intolerance of critically ill patients. I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there are several different mechanisms possible. I was hoping that maybe you could speak more on that. Yeah, I think they're multifactorial. But what we think might be driving a lot of this is gut disuse in the context of a sick inflamed patient where there's a breakdown in the epithelial barrier function of the gut such that we see translocation of bacteria, fungi, their products, such that it initiates an inflammatory reaction, leads to breakdown of the barrier, activation of of immune complexes that actually perpetuates the inflammatory response that we see clinically. It leads to a decreased or a a dysmotile gut that that isn't uh, functioning properly. And so we can get retention of secretions in the foregut, which can be regurgitated back into the oropharynx and, and, and then aspirated into the lung as a one of the mechanisms that people, uh, patients can develop, you know, ventilator pneumonia, ventilator associated pneumonia. So by feeding people early, we can try and prevent or restore the integrity of the barrier function and the motility function. 
And it also gives us a clue into other, you know, therapeutic maneuvers. Head of the bed elevated reduces that regurgitation. Bypassing the stomach with small bowel feeling bypasses the, the, that regurgitative event. Um, and then motility agents, prokinetic agents that try to, you know, restore gastrointestinal motility. So things move distally rather than caudally is the, is the other uh, therapeutic option. Got it. I wanted to ask you, as you were speaking about all the, the, those risks and the mechanisms of inflammation, whether there are urban myths about internal nutritional support in the critically ill. I, I'm thinking about how every time somebody's on multiple pressors, we start getting really fidgety about feeding their gut because we think there's no circulation there. And I, I'm not trying to say that that's an urban myth, but I wanted to actually use that as an opportunity to ask you about um, urban myths that you hear about in terms of internal nutrition and the critical ill and whether those are true or false. Actually, I think you nailed a good one. Uh, you know, <laughs> people in shock are, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about feeding them. We see a lot of them kept MPO. And this is exactly where we see breakdown in that barrier function and perpetuates the inflammatory response. And so, I, you know, we, my colleagues, Jay Patel and I and others published a pilot RCT showing that with early trophic feeds and people with shock, we actually saw a, an improvement in clinical outcomes, uh, more ICU days alive, uh, free, uh, alive in ICU free days. Uh, it was a small study. We called it a pilot study, but it gives us the wherewithal to move forward and do a larger trial in shock, demonstrating the you know the value of early feeding. So my hypothesis would be that early feeding in shock would reduce central feeding intolerance and improve clinical outcomes. And and not just that small trial that I I cited, but there's a there's a whole body of literature that would support that assertion. So you know, we need to feed a distressed gut, not not keep it NPO. So that's one of the myths that I'd like to label is that a distressed gut um, would do better, you know, just being left alone. <laughs> you know, no, it needs to be given a core nutrients to keep it flourishing, keep the uh, barrier junction, epithelial junctions intact, keep the motility waves going and giving a tincture of glutamine, a little bit of low-dose trophic feeds and a prophylactic motility agent would be what I would want if I were in that scenario. Good to know. Thank you. Any other urban myths that you would like to dispel while we're at it? I don't know about urban myth, but I certainly think in this conversation, we should acknowledge the controversy around measuring gastric residual volumes. In fact, the Aspen SCCM guidelines don't recommend it. They recommend that you don't monitor and so that's a belief out there. And that's based on some RCT level of evidence. But if you look carefully at that level of evidence, you know, you look at patients who are mostly medical and mostly already getting prokinetic agents. And so if you can't and who are getting 80 to 85% of their nutrient intake already. So that does not represent the world's practice on nutrition. Um, I, this paper suggests that burns, gastrointestinal, which is a lot of gastrointestinal surgery, uh, sepsis, which is a lot of shock. These are the subgroups of people that are going to get into trouble with enteral feeding intolerance. And so if you ask yourself, well, how represented are these 
particular troublesome subgroups in those RCTs? The answer is they're not well represented. And so I am very nervous about applying that RCT level of evidence to, to all feeding protocols in all ICUs, which is what the guidelines advocate. So, so that's problematic. And, and so I stand in opposition to that recommendation and think a safer way is to continue to measure GRVs, but to be a bit more uh, smart about, you know, when are you going to react and when are you not going to react? You use a higher gastric residual volume threshold, like 500, and you're not going to have a negative impact on nutritional intake, which is the reason why people want to stop uh, measuring GRVs. And when you see it in somebody that it's persistent or recurrent, then you're going to get your get a little more excited about it and engage in, in therapeutic maneuvers. So I don't know if that was an urban myth, but it's certainly an area of controversy that required some, some comment. It, it sounds like you almost want to make sure that we use it as a prompt, you know, the uh, periodic measurement as a prompt to, to, to make sure that we keep on thinking about some of these nutrition because sometimes it's kind of... Why do we monitor heart rate or oximetry or any other vital signs yeah. to see, oh, wait, something's deranged there. What should yes. I do differently? So yeah. where in critical care do you say, well, let's stop measuring a sick organ that's showing us the sign of dysfunction so that we right. ignore it? Does that make sense to you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I totally see your point. I, I, I really appreciate it. That, that, that's great. I would like to move on to thinking about ways of managing patients once you've diagnosed enteral feeding intolerance. Let's talk about the various ways that we could intervene in a positive fashion. I, I feel like you already mentioned one, which is um, the use of body positioning. It sounds like uh, having people in a heads-up position is useful. Yeah, there's a low. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. There's a low level of old evidence that supports that that will reduce gastric esophageal regurgitation and pulmonary aspiration, and it's a simple thing to do. So why not? In contrast, lying someone flat on their back with tubes violating the sphincters that are supposed to keep stuff in the stomach, the lower and upper esophageal sphincter, that just is going to promote free regurgitation. And then to the extent that somebody, you know, aspirates and has swallowing dysfunction, that, that's going to cause, you know, pneumonia. So let's elevate the head and see, see if we can do that safely. As an anesthesiologist who rounds on post-op pain patients, you know, with epidurals in place, et cetera, I always tell them, to mobilize early because that encourages earlier return of bowel function. Mm -hmm. Do you, have you seen that, for example, with early mobility in ICU patients? Do, do, do they have better tolerance of enteral nutrition? Great question. I think I would like to say anecdotally, I agree with you. I'm trying to remember if there's published literature on that. I mean, we, 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 can, we can look at manometric studies and clearly see an absence of mo normal motility patterns in the first few days after you know, someone with bad burn or bad septic. But I, I'm not aware of any manometric or motility analyses on, on that concept of early mobilization. But I would, hmm. I would say anecdotally, that makes sense to me that you've restored so much of their other organs and function and, and being upright and walking that, that, or even just moving that that yeah. makes sense to me. I'm curious now. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, the, uh, the effect of, you know, like circadian rhythms on enteral feeding, uh, when, when you start troubleshooting patients with, uh, intolerance, do, does that ever enter into your algorithm? 
No, no, not really. We don't see normal circadian patterns. In, you know, critical illness disturbs a lot of that. And if I focus on the motility patterns for a minute, you know, in a sedated, sick, mechanically ventilated ICU patient, if you put a manometer, which is a pressure tubing across their esophagus into their foregut and look at their motility patterns, they'll be absent. There's no pattern there that rep- represents norm- normality. And so it needs to be, and that's that's why we you know suggest there may be a role for motility agents to try and mm-hmm. kickstart that that motility pattern and restore you know distal gastric emptying and try and prevent that proximal regurgitation from happening. Okay. Well, since you've mentioned a couple times now the uh, potential utility of prokinetic agents, let's talk about medications. What medications help? For sure, what what medications potentially help? What medications hinder? Fortunately, there's a very limited array of available prokinetic agents that, that are helpful. In most jurisdictions, erythromycin and metoclopramide, or Reglan, I believe is its uh, trade name, uh, right. is available in, in the United States or in North America. Weak level of evidence, but supportive level of evidence that they do kickstart the gut, promote gastric emptying, and increase enteral feeding intolerance. Um, weak level of evidence that if I use it prophylactically, I can I can prevent gastrointestinal uh, or enteral feeding intolerance. So those are the two sort of drugs that people would go to to treat or to prophylax with enteral feeding intolerance. But unfortunately, as you may be aware, they both have some baggage in terms of their side effects. And so there's a, particularly in the United States, there's a reticence to use those drugs. Um, Whereas in other parts of the world, we see them used quite routinely to both prophylax and treat enteral feeding intolerance. I, I can say, and particularly since this project was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company, that they're are a number of agents in the pipeline. They're trying to develop novel pro- prokinetic agents that have less uh, side effect drug-drug interactions. And so stay tuned, but nothing, nothing worth talking about at the moment. Okay. What about medications commonly used in the ICU that definitely hinder gastrointestinal? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, uh, from an anesthesiology point of view, a lot of the opioids uh, that you use to provide pain relief and sedation will have a negative effect on motility. And so, you know, any narcotic reducing strategy to keep your patient lighter or to use other non-narcotics to to sedate them would be beneficial for their gut. The other thing I, I think I'd like to mention at this point is fluids. Although that's not a drug, you, you know how if we're aggressive with fluid resuscitation, our patients get edematous and we can see that externally. That's what their gut looks like. And so a, 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 stuff, a puffy, distended stomach isn't going to contract like a normal stomach would be. So running people on the dry side for their lungs also benefits their, their stomach and their motility patterns. Interesting. You know, there's other disruptions in electrolytes that happen in the ICU. You know, we do uh, observational studies that associate enteral feeding intolerance with different things, and and vasopressor agents come out in the wash. Mm-hmm. So if you're you're in shock, you're more likely to develop enteral feeding intolerance, and so that's one of the drugs that gets you know labeled as a bad thing in enteral feeding intolerance from those observational studies. But we've already talked about how 
you know, it's not the drug that's causing it, it's the shock state and the gut disuse that leads to enteral feeding intolerance and how we're trying to change that paradigm and say, well, feeding through shock will be better. Not, not force feeding and aggressive feeding, but just low dose trophic feeds and a little bit of glutamine will uh, resuscitate that distressed uh, enterocyte. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that in the critically ill population, sort of quote unquote normal gut motility is out the window anyway. But I wanted to nevertheless ask you if there's any benefit to bolus feeds versus continuous feeds in terms of troubleshooting somebody with tolerance issues. It's a good question. It's an active question of research right now. Um, I think initially people were interested in bolus versus continuous as a way of trying to prevent regurgitation and aspiration and and you know, by giving some time where the gut's empty, it, it empties itself, it re- normalizes its pH, you get rid of bugs that overgrow. And that the, those data, which are now a little bit older, didn't really show any benefit uh, to bolus versus intermittent. And in fact, in some non-ICU patient populations like stroke patients, if you give a bolus to somebody who doesn't have good airway protection, they're going to aspirate more commonly than somebody who's receiving continuous feeds. Mm-hmm. More recently, we're, we're more interested in uh, bolus versus intermittent for its effect on the, the metabolic machinery and, and protein synthesis and tried to say, well, if you hold feeds for a period and just feed it in a bolus way, you're, you're more likely to stimulate protein synthesis and that'll have a positive effect on muscle mass, muscle retention. That story didn't pan out, but I would, I would say it's still early in that story to be conclusive. Okay. So I, I, we're, not, we're not recommending bolus feeding. The standard of care would still be continuous feeds as the safest way, uh, given, given the other things I've talked about in terms of monitoring and, and managing it. Okay. Sounds good. And the last question I have for you about medications, and I, I got to ask you because I know this is on everybody's mind, TPN as an alternative. How, how do you personally feel about this? Yeah, I personally feel good about it. I mean, I'm part of the problem 20 years ago when we were describing parental nutrition as poison, total poisonous nutrition. Uh, and that, that those were data that were old and using older products and older protocols. Today, it's a different world. Uh, we've had several large-scale randomized controlled trials of newer products in, in a newer context, right, where we're better at lines and, be, uh, and uh, glycemic control. And so... We don't see infection risks like we did, you know, 20 years ago. And in fact, in some of the studies of evaluating early parenteral nutrition, we actually see some therapeutic benefit. So I I would advocate that in that nutritionally high-risk patient group who's having persistent enteral feeding intolerance in whom your enteral-based strategies like small bowel feeding or motility agents either aren't working or aren't available to you, that supplementing them with parenteral nutrition is an, uh, a, a modern-day therapeutic strategy. Good to hear. I think that's going to help a lot of us. Well, I wanted to summarize our conversation, which has been really educational for me personally. I wanted to summarize by providing our listeners with perhaps a quick algorithm for dealing with this topic of enteral feeding intolerance in their patient population. So it sounds like from what you've said and what you've stressed is the number one thing to do is figure out their risk for malnutrition. Are they at low risk versus high risk? And if they're at high risk, worry more about 
the lack of enteral nutrition, but if they're at low risk, for example, because they're going to be out of the ICU in one or two days to not worry about it that much. Is that, is that a good way to sort of think of the first step in the algorithm? Well, actually, I would flip it a little bit and say I would feed everybody. I would have a feeding protocol that evaluates gastric residual volume so that I'm managing that. And if I, because like the incidence is only 25 to 33%, right? So, so most people will fly through this mm. and not have problems. Mm-hmm. So it's in the people that have a problem. Okay. Then you have to invoke the, the question of, well, is this, is this a problem for this patient? Oh, What's their nutritional risk status? Yeah. What's their nutrient score? And if their nutrient score is high, well, then you're going to think about it double. Okay. If the nutrient score is low and it's the first time and they otherwise look well, then you're just going to come back tomorrow. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I put the nutrition risk um, after you define the incident and then try and risk stratify from there. Okay. And the way you monitor is by checking intermittent gastric residuals. And once you identify that there's a problem, then you think about the different uh, troubleshooting steps that we've gone through. And if yeah. nothing works, it's okay to actually proceed with some parental nutrition. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Again, in the nutritionally high-risk patients, I wouldn't be prescribing supplemental parental nutrition in a low nutritionally risk patient who's got problems with high enteral feeding intolerance. I just sort of wait it out or, you know, and if that patient evolves into a long-stay patient or evolves into a nutritionally high-risk patient, then that's a different story. But, you know, like most of these patients, the, the high residual volume will disappear. And if they're a low-risk patient, they'll be discharged in a few days. Not a big deal. Sure. That sounds great. All right. I think that's really helpful. And thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share all of this. Aside from what we um, have spoken thus far, were there anything else that you wanted to tell the audience before we signed off? I just would like to stress one of the themes from this conversation has been not all ICU patients are the same. And you know that when you manage their lung injury or their sepsis, but it's the same with nutrition. And so to be a bit more considerate of the person I'm dealing with here, are they a high-risk, nutritionally speaking, patient or not, not all enteral feeding intolerance is the same. And in, in a setting where the patient's otherwise clinically well and you have a GRV of 200, who cares? But in someone that has persistent high GRV of 500 times 2 or times 3, I would be really worried that this patient's dying and the gut is giving us a clue. And if you didn't measure that or weren't monitoring that as a part of your feeding protocol, you wouldn't know that. So don't let go of that information. Continue monitoring and develop the algorithm that we kind of just talked about a minute ago to manage this problem when you detect it in your ICU. Sounds great. Dr. Hyland, thank you so much. That's super helpful to me, and I'm sure that uh, our audience feels similarly. Again, this podcast is linked to a study that is being published by Dr. Highland in Critical Care Medicine. And please go to ccmjournal.org to, to find the entire study published in detail. Ludwig, can I, can I just say one last yeah. thing and close it? Um, we do have a website, www.criticalcarenutrition.com. Critical Care Nutrition is all one word. We put a lot of our guidelines, our systematic reviews, our tools to help people at the bedside practice nutrition, our feeding algorithms, et cetera. It's all available for free on that website. So again, I'd encourage your listeners to check it out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, on that note, this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. 
for the podcast team. I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin, and thank you for listening. Take care. This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High acuity patients require time sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents, allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Ludwig H. Lin, M.D., is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being an SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.